Titus. Woohoo! Well, some of you who brought your paper Bibles with you, have, and, and maybe you've already searched it, have opened to the book of Titus uh, and uh, to, to continue. But what I want you to do is to turn around and uh, close that book and go to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the exciting, exciting book in the beginning of the Bible that has a lot to do with the Old Testament law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy 17 in just a moment. So the elephant in the room, how many elephants are present this morning? Excellent, excellent. Very few elephants in the room this morning. Um, elephants, I, I think our building manager will be very happy to hear this because elephants are a lot of work to clean up after, I hear. So Rochelle, very few elephants this morning. You're good to go after service. The elephant we're actually talking about this morning is the elephant of politics, right? Um, you know what I've noticed about American politics and actually about us in regards to American politics? We expect a lot out of our politicians. You notice that? We expect them to be able to work with people of different opinions and yet never compromise on important issues. We expect them to be healthy at all times, to have good stamina. That was a joke. <laughs> good. Thank you, Derek, for your half-hearted laugh. We expect them to be cool-tempered but tough on terror, but also good with babies. The people there are now looking up at the pictures, yes. <clears throat> we expect them to be eloquent, smart, articulate, and always consistent in their stand on the issues. We want them to be tall, in shape, well-groomed and dressed. <clears throat> Excuse me. We expect them to be people of high moral character who never fail personally or politically. In short, we want Captain America. And if he doesn't stand with us on certain issues, maybe Obi-Wan Kenobi. He, he is our only hope. That's right. He is our only hope. I saw that bumper sticker on somebody's car. It said, Obi-Wan Skywalker, you know, was the president. He says, he is our only hope. I was like, oh, this is so good. I need to get one of these. I don't have one, though. So when a politician doesn't measure up to any of those standards, though, it's publicized on national television. Commentators and radio hosts get really excited because it gives them something to talk about. And eventually an organization is formed to gather together a protest, which would be a large group eye-rolling, right? Which is, ugh. Stupid president, stupid this person. You know, we get all upset about them. And then we skewer them, we barbecue them, we rake them over the coals as they rise to power. If they don't fail, we worship them. Now, you're, some of you are going, hey, I don't worship the president, but I want you to think about what worship really is. Worship is offering up your life to something and expecting in return that it provides security, safety, provision, all of these things that we look to God for, provision, pardon, and protection. We look to the president for these things in our culture. We look to our politicians and our leaders. And so we, we have a cult of leadership in this country. That's a cult. A cult is a, is, it's a inappropriate amount of, uh, attention and focus on a specific individual sometimes. That's one definition of a cult. And in this culture, we have a leadership cult. We look at our leaders and we look to them for protection, for pardon, for security, for all of these things. And instead of looking to God. As they rise to power, we worship them. But then when we find out that they're actually human beings, or they fall prey to the system that they are being raised up in, and that they are functioning in, we vilify them. We vilify them. Some of the best people in our country have been politicians and have been utterly skewered in the, in the news and in, in uh, radio shows and commentators and in our personal conversations. We don't speak well of our politicians when they fail. I don't know about you, 
but the one thing I would never, ever want to be is president of the United States. I mean, did you see what it did to Barack Obama? Have you seen him? He looks like, like something sucked the life out of him, literally. He's shriveled and shrunken. And it's sad because he was so full of life when he came into office. I mean, take his politics away, agree or disagree. When you look at the man and what the presidency has done to him, I would never, ever want to be in his shoes. Being a pastor is, is close enough. I mean, by far close enough. The amount of criticism you take as a pastor is nothing compared to what you take as a president. So I would never, ever want his job. So thinking about politics this year and how much we expect of our politicians, I've been kind of trying to figure out how idealistic is it fair to be with our leaders? How idealistic is it, is it fair? How, much, how, how great of expectations is it fair to put on our leaders? And how judgmental of our politicians can I really be? How compromising is too compromising? How corrupt is too corrupt? How many naps is too many naps for the president? How much bad hair is too much bad hair to be president? So far, my answer is that I don't actually get to be too idealistic in my choices this year. Um, I have to hope that our system of checks and balances is going to it's going to be robust enough to hold things together until either person in the office winds up leaving is what it feels like. And in the midst of that, I have to put all of my hope, all of my trust in God to see us through no matter what. But here's the thing, folks. We've spent far too long as a, as a people, especially as Christians in America, we spent far too long looking to a political system, to a nation, to a flag, to politicians to produce for us a savior. As we said last week, we've taken our eyes off our real Savior, Jesus, and we've put them on things that can never, ever measure up. We've been doing this as long as anyone can remember. God has always wanted to be the sole Savior, the sole leader of his people. And even as he set up the ground rules for his people and what they should look like and how they should live in this world in order to reflect more of heaven and less of hell in their culture, even as he was setting up those ground rules, he knew that his people were one day going to say, hey, you know, all the other nations around us, they've got kings, they've got presidents, we want one too. He knew that the people of Israel would ask, they say, we need a king for ourselves. So in Deuteronomy 17, this is where God actually addresses this issue. What does he do? Again, long before people even ask for a king, he sets up the ground rules. Deuteronomy 17, and we're going to be reading uh, starting... Oops, I switched my page. Verse 14. I'm going to read it out loud to you. It's in the back of your bulletin. uh, If you would like to read it there, your paper Bible or your phone, open it up right now. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. From among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people of Egypt to return or the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne, of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and 
It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the left or right, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So here's the rules that God gives Israel for their leaders. The sorts of leaders that they should be elevating in the kingdom of Israel so that the kingdom of Israel, again, reflects heaven, more of heaven and less of hell. You following me? More of heaven and less of hell. First thing he says is he must be from the brothers of Israel. We would say that he must provide a birth certificate proving that he was born in the United States. Very important. So birth certificate, number one, born in Israel. Number two, he must not gather horses of war, especially from Egypt. God is saying that you will not make military alliances with foreign nations for the purpose of gaining military power. The horse of war in those days was the equivalent of the Sherman or A1 Abrams tank. I guess that's what that one is. It's the, the, the attack helicopter of the day. People were like mostly went about on foot and they had spears and swords. But if you had a horse, you had strength and power and speed and size to crush your enemies. And the people of those days would build military alliances with one another. Like, hey, I've got a thousand foot soldiers and you've got 500 horses. What say you bring your horses to my side and I'll bring my guys to your side and we can go trance the other nation. The king is not to gather military power from other nations by bringing his people to bear. In fact, sacrificing his people for the sake of another nation and not to return them to slavery in order to do it. That is the way the world build power. And God says, this isn't the way I build power. Not through military might and not through alliances. Second, he must not take many wives for himself. Now, if a presidential candidate were to have multiple wives, they would probably not be elected. Probably. I don't know. In this election race, you never know what's going to happen, right? This year, it's like, he's had seven wives and still has them. Okay, we can vote for that. That's okay. But back in these days... Having multiple wives was common practice. In fact, that was a great way to build an alliance. All you got to do is marry the other king's daughter, right? You marry the other king's daughter, and then your nations are family. You're no longer enemies. You're family. Now, family and enemies, you might argue, might be the same thing sometimes, right? But in this case, this is how you got rid of the enmity between the two nations, is you married them together because they were going to produce children. And you have two Kingly bloodlines is going to produce a double kingly child, and that that child, should it be a male, would become the next king of both nations, uniting them together, building great wealth, great strength, great power through royal bloodlines. But God says, don't take many wives for yourself. Don't let the king take many wives for himself, because God doesn't want Israel's power to come from royal bloodlines. Then he says in verse 17b, he must not acquire lots of gold and silver from himself. Now, this seems absolutely crazy when you think about kings and kingdoms, right? You have your little daughter. She's at home playing princess. She's playing princess in her mind in a kingdom full of wealth and goodness. The castle is large. There are many soldiers to protect them. And she has a long flowing gown, right? It's it's a beautiful picture, but it takes wealth. Every kingdom that has been on this planet has been a kingdom that's built on wealth. It's built on money. And it's fascinating that this law was written to the people of Israel because when you think about the kings of Israel and you think about Solomon, King David's son, he was the wealthiest king to ever live. The wealthiest king to ever live. He gathered piles and piles of cash. 
Yet God doesn't want the person leading his people to be seeking power through wealth. Five, he has to keep the law of the Lord before him day and night. The king remains a humble servant of the people by remaining a humble servant of God, reflecting God's kingdom and not the values of this world. This is the sort of person God wants to be putting in power, not building power the way the world builds power, but in receiving the power that comes from the Lord. Now, there's this theory that's put forth by modern biblical scholars who see a connection between this one passage in Deuteronomy and the rest of the books of the Bible right after it. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel. Um, these, are the, these books are all built around this idea. It's called the Deuteronomical History of Israel. We have this picture of this is what Israel should look like. This is what their kings should look like. And the rest of these show how it plays out when leaders are put up in front of Israel. And what we see is time and again, the book of Judges teaches us that the people turn away from God. The people turn away from God. The people turn away from God. They look to powers. They look to gods. They look to wealth. They look to horses of war. And they turn away from God. And God comes back and rescues them. You look at the kings of Israel. Even look at David. And he broke every single one of these laws. None of them could measure up. None of them. And even coming to one of the last kings of Israel, King Manasseh, he completely lost, I don't know how you do this, but he completely lost the commandments of God. Completely lost them. Like, man, I I know I saw it somewhere. There's the Ark of the Covenant, it had the Ten Commandments in it. We had it around here somewhere. Where did it go? Ah, that's no big deal. And we had to wait later for his grandson to find it again. And his grandson finds it, and he opens it up, and he reads it, and he reads Deuteronomy 17, and he's like, Oh, shoot. Uh, Somebody get me a priest, quick, you know, and they start putting this thing back together. And they have to rebuild God's kingdom amongst the people of Israel. They have to rebuild the worship of the Lord. They have to put their mind and focus on the right things to turn things around. What this teaches us, what these books together teach us when we look at it from this perspective, If these men, the greatest kings of all times, the most powerful men of all times, the wealthiest men of all times, men who were literally chosen by God, David, a king who was a man after God's own heart, if these men could not measure up to the law of the Lord, guess what? None of us can. We can't do it. We can't measure up. What makes us think that if those men couldn't measure up to the ways of God, that we can find somebody in our secular, broken system that will. What makes us think that we ever will? An ungodly system will never produce godly leaders. It's just the fact of life. And naturally, that's going to always make it difficult for us to choose our leaders in a secular sense. In a secular society, it's always going to be difficult for Christians to choose the right leader because the leaders that are being raised up will never measure up. If we agree on religion, we may not agree on the issues. We have to do our very best to prayerfully choose a candidate that best represents what we believe is important to God. Let me rephrase that. You have to best choose prayerfully the leader that you think best represents the things that are important to God. That's all we can do. And then we vote and we leave the future in the the, hands of God, not in the hands of politicians. 
we leave the future in the hands of God and not in the politicians. Deuteronomy also teaches us that there's no such thing as a perfect leader. All of our expectations of what we want in a president, what we want in a senator, a congressman, with all of these things, we look at them, we get angry at them for blowing it, for messing up, for having an affair, all sorts of things that we can get angry with them for. We need to remember that there is no such thing as a perfect leader or a perfect person. There is no earthly king, no earthly ruler, no earthly pastor, no matter how amazing and good-looking they are like me, that will ever measure up to God's standards for leadership. Even me, I will blow it and have blown it and do blow it on a weekly basis, maybe even an hourly basis. I don't know. I try not to keep track. There's no such thing as a perfect leader. And what's more, I think if there was a perfect leader, you know what we would do? We would completely overlook them. Because there was one person in all of history that measured up to Deuteronomy's standards for leadership. His name was Jesus, and we crucified him. People of Israel were looking for a king to meet those standards. He walks in their front door, and he's like, wait a minute. People are like, this is not what we're looking for. We, we need horses. We need horses of war to beat the, to beat the Romans. We, we need military alliances with other kingdoms. We need to pull all the other kingdoms that are under the rule of Rome together to rise up against Rome. Jesus comes in in the midst of that and says, love your enemy, bless them, and not curse them. He comes in totally backwards with a humble servant's attitude and a humble servant's heart with the law of the Lord before him day and night, the walking personification of the kingdom of God on earth, and we crucify him crucify him. What's more, earthly rulers and earthly powers are so different than God's powers. God's power is not political. It's not martial, meaning military. It's not social, and it's not built on wealth. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. When we elect a president, we are by agreement giving human power to one man or one woman. Military power the power to build alliances, the power to build wealth on our behalf as well as theirs. We elect people to some degree based on our perception of their ability to do those things. But we are not giving them God's power. We are giving them earthly power. That's what the election does. But this isn't God's way. The power of God is humble, self-sacrificing love. And it looks like the cross. An ungodly system will never produce godly leaders, so therefore we have to inject godly leaders into the ungodly system. That's our job, to try to raise up godly leaders that we can push into these places of leadership and authority to affect the system for the kingdom of God, for his good and his ways. So the church does have a role to play in creating godly leaders. We do have a role to play in building up our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, even our nation into something that reflects the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of hell. This is a part of what Paul is dealing with in the letter to Titus. The church in Crete has a leadership problem. Last week we said the church in Crete had a faith problem. They did. They were looking at their situation and they were trembling in fear and they were misguided and they were listening to every whim of teaching from anybody because they didn't know any different. And they were trusting in their leaders. They were trusting in their system. They were trusting in their wealth. And in the midst of that, Paul says, I'm going to address this to you because you have a faith problem. You're not living in grace and in peace. You need grace and peace. You need to walk in grace and peace and have faith that God is working out his will in this world. 
Now he's going to go on to say the second problem you have is a leadership problem. Partly, the believers in Crete were so young in the faith that none of them were ready to take ownership of their church. This was a young church plant full of young 20-somethings who had only recently, for the first time, heard anything at all about Jesus ever. Brand new believers. They're like, you're kidding me. Somebody is self-sacrificing love that exists in this world? I want that self-sacrificing love. And that's like the extent of their knowledge. They had just this little bit of knowledge. So they weren't ready to take ownership of being a community that reflects God's values and God's ways. None of them were ready to take leadership. And to top all that off, they had some unsavory characters sneaking into the church to try to teach Sunday school, right? They're trying to teach Sunday school and they're looking at what, what Paul taught and they're looking at some other teachings and they're looking at the Gnostic Gospels and all these different things and they're bringing in these mixed up, messed up teachings that don't line up with what Paul was teaching. And in the middle of all of this, Paul, without naming names, describes bad leaders. He describes what the bad leaders look like. And then he drops this long list. Paul loves lists. How many people like lists? I love lists. I'm a list guy. Paul was a list guy. I imagine like if you were, you're like you were his secretary or whatever, you would see that he just like had lists all over the place. And he's like writing out these lists and he's like, oh, this list will work here. And so he sends this list to Titus that says, this is what a good leader looks like. Look for these kind of people. But here's the even bigger idea of what Paul is trying to say to the church in Titus, the church in Crete. He says this, here's the big idea. Be the elephant you wish to see. Be the elephant you wish to see. That's riffing on Gandhi, obviously. Be the, be the change you wish to see. But what he's saying is become the sort of godly people that you would want to entrust with the leadership of your church. And God would be saying to us today here in the middle of Washington State in 2016, be the sort of people that you would entrust the leadership of this country with. I know you never want to be president. I know you never want that life-sucking experience to happen to you. But focus on being the sort of person that you would want to entrust leadership of this nation to. Let's explore what Paul had to say, starting in Titus 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is Titus's job description. It's very, very short. Grow the church to maturity. Put it into order. Make it grow. Put the things that were not in order before into the right order. Paul has charged Titus to help this new church grow toward maturity, to grow up in Jesus, to set some leaders up to help people grow and mature. And he needed to do this because he was dealing with these difficult issues. Here's Now here is Paul's description of the mess. Okay, Here's the mess that the people were uh, kind of all mixed up in. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now you notice I didn't use a picture here. <laughs> what this is referencing is this big problem that Paul actually was addressing over and over again. The book of uh, Galatians is where Paul really discusses it. There was a party of Jewish believers who believed in Jesus but said, look, the Old Testament law says that men have to be circumcised in order to be marked as the people of God. And Paul says, look, to say that Christians today, after the cross, still have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, is to say that the sacrifice of Jesus, God's one and only son, out of love for the whole world, was not enough. You have to have that sacrifice, 
and circumcision. Paul says, that's, it's not okay. That's, it's, the cross is more than enough. The cross is more than enough. So this false teaching is creeping into the church where the people have to work in order to earn their salvation. Let's move on. The second thing, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game that what they ought not teach. I mean, look at this. They're making babies cry. They are, they're making families come apart. There's a, husbands are against wife because the husband's like, well, I gotta be circumcised. And the wife's like, no, you don't. And, and the kids are like, I don't want to be circumcised. I don't want anything to do with this. And so the families are being divided by this teaching and they don't know which end is up. And so the whole family of God is being broken apart by these false teachings. There's fights. There's arguments. They come together and they're divided. They sit on opposite sides of the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Roman culture, there's really only two ways for people to achieve power. First of all is by birth. You're born a Roman citizen and you were born to a pedigreed family. So you receive honor and authority and power just by birth. But the second way is to be involved in trade guilds and things like that. You can achieve power by building honor, by increasing your wealth, by earning rank and position for the club that you're a part of, um, and especially the patronage of a pedigreed Roman. So if you've got a person that was born with all that pedigree and they say, oh, he's a really nice guy, then you achieve your honor and status. What's going on in this church is the church started looking a lot like a, gl- a club, a trade guild, people coming together. And people were trying to look, well, I'm going to earn power and position in this church. And I'm going to do that by teaching, even if I don't know what I'm teaching, even if I don't know what I'm saying. Oh, they start interpreting these things and they start bringing false teachings in. They were teaching this stuff for shameful gain, to to gain honor and power and authority in the church. And Paul says it's wrong. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. To me, this sounds a little bit like a stereotype. I don't know about you, right? Can you believe this is in the Bible? I mean, some of us were like, oh, the Bible is a holy, it's a holy book and it's a holy thoughts. And here Paul's like, evil, lazy, gluttonous people talking about these Cretes, people from Crete. It wasn't very kind. We were talking about this the other day and uh, we had our small group and I'm like, this is like a stereotype. And, and Audrey, I don't know if you guys are familiar, he's not here this morning. And so I hesitated to say, share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, <clears throat> Audrey is from, from Holland. Okay. He's, not like, he's from a whole nother country, a whole nother culture. I'm like, hey, Audrey, you know, I was just curious, Dutch people in Holland, what are the stereotypes of them? I don't know. I mean, Americans, are, we're fat and we're lazy, right? That's our, that's our stereotype. We're fat and lazy. But for people from Holland, what are, what are your stereotypes? And he says, I don't know, tulip bulb eaters? I'm like, what is that? Is that like a squirrel? Because they steal tulip bulbs. I don't know. That's bizarre. So he says a tulip bulb eater. This is a stereotype of the Cretans. The people of Crete loved a good argument. They loved a good fight. In fact, they would have one opinion and they would switch opinions just to make you upset. I know somebody like that in this church, but I'm not going to mention who it is, Bruce Heimbigner. Um, <laughs> they loved a good controversy. They would argue for the sake of argument. They, this is, and Paul's like, this testimony is true. They're always liars. They're always evil beasts. They're always lazy gluttons. And somebody from their own church said this about them. It wasn't just Paul saying this. Somebody else said this. They create conflict. And we see later in the book um, that 
they were not fond of any form of government. So these guys were your modern-day anarchists. That's what they were in this culture. They didn't like the Roman government. They didn't like the Cretan government. They didn't like church government. They didn't want to have any authority over them. They just argued and fought and created these constant tension. And they lived to just please themselves. Verse 15, he goes on. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Their minds were so clouded by their own greedy gain, by their own desires for power, by their own political aspirations, by their own sinful desires, that they couldn't tell truth from a lie, right from wrong. And when they did, when they did something wrong, their consciences didn't even prick them at all. They couldn't tell. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is perhaps the most condemning statement Paul makes yet. They claim to know and serve the living God, and yet their actions don't show it at all. Sound at all like our political candidates who will wear pens for the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church, and yet their, their values and their actions don't line up with that? Now, to be fair to them, if I wore a pen for the Foursquare Church, my actions and my values don't always match up with it either because we're broken, sinful human people. But these guys, they claimed to know and serve God, but their works didn't back it up. In fact, their works proved them to be disobedient to God. They are unfit to do God's work. They are, spiritually speaking, not in shape to run God's race. They are not, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to find a picture of somebody who's running out of shape. I, I guess maybe when you run, you are actually in shape, but it's really difficult to find a picture like that. Yeah, apparently you have no legs and you run out of shape. So here's the thing. Wow. Picture. Can you imagine, okay, this, 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 Paul wrote this to Titus. Paul wrote this letter to Titus. He just described these really bad leaders. Now, what's really cool about this, today, if you wrote me a letter, I'd probably, you know, open it up at home, I'd read it, and maybe my wife would read it. If it was a really nice letter, if you had really nasty things to say, I probably wouldn't let her read it. But if you wrote this really just this wonderful letter to me, I would read it privately, maybe share it with a few people close to me, and feel really good about it, and put it away. Now, in this culture, Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Titus read it privately, and then he came to church Sunday morning, and he climbed up on stage, and he said, to Titus, from Paul, and he starts to read this. And the people are sitting in the room. They are literally in the room as this is being written, written, uh, read. Paul is totally blasting these men and women, and they're just sitting there. They're just, like, shocked. They're, like, like, their faces are like, what? What? Me? And in that moment, it's that moment where they realize, it's that moment when you realize, oh, I am the elephant in the room. It's, it's, not, it's not these other things. It's me. I am the elephant in the room. These are some seriously quality people that he's working with here, right? Seriously quality people. Obviously, they were not the only people in the church. There must have been some others in the church who had some good qualities to them. But there must have been enough there for them to really cause trouble for poor Pastor Titus. So what does Paul tell Titus to do with these people? Back to verse 11. They are to be silenced. Titus is literally 
to shut them up. No talky talky. You know, this is me. Uh, this is you. Shush, shush, shush. No talking. Silence them. They are in no way allowed to have authority in the church, to have a voice in the church, to lead a small group, to teach in a small group, to teach a Sunday school class, to, to expound on theology. If they do not meet, if they are in anywhere in these standards, they are to be silent. They are to be silent. And then in verse 13, this is what Titus is told to do. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the command and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Translation, shut them up and correct them. Teach them correctly. Poor Titus. He's like 25 years old, and he's given this young church, and there's probably some men who have been looking for ways to achieve power and authority, and they're teaching him, and he's like, Titus, you've got to go talk to these guys. They, they can't keep talking like this. It doesn't matter if it's just in a small group. It doesn't matter if it's a small group. If they're drunkards, if they're arrogant, they're not allowed to preach the gospel because it hasn't taken hold in their lives. It's not allowed. Can I tell you, I've made those stands as a pastor and it's one of the hardest things I ever do because there is invariably somebody who is standing up for that person, which is good because I don't want to just chase people off. I don't want to just say shut up. I don't. I want God's work to be God's work in their lives. But as it protect the church, as the shepherd, one of the hardest things I have to do is to correct false thinking and false theology because it becomes personal. So if you're ever corrected by me, know that it is done in love because I care about you and I care about this church. And I'm doing what has been commanded to me by Paul some many generations later. <clears throat> Why is it so important? Why are Paul's, Paul's knickers in such a bunch, right? Because, get this, a church is only as strong as its disciples. And we could be the biggest church in the nation. But that church is only as strong as its disciples. We could have the best lighting. We could have the best, coolest building. We have like one of the coolest buildings that I know of for a church. It's super cool. This, this, amen. I mean, it's like, we could have the coolest marquee out front. I mean, we could talk about all of the things we could have. We could have the coolest van to transport kids to places. Maybe we could have the, you know, the, the best the, the hottest, the most awesome pastor's wife ever. And it doesn't matter because you know what? The quality of the disciple determines the quality of the church. The church is only as strong as its disciples. That is why leadership matters a lot to God. If the people of a church are living in fear, they're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, then the whole church is weak and failing to reflect the kingdom of heaven. It will stagnate, it will grow weak, and they will fall away from the faith. And they will die in their faith. I imagine that it would be tough to build a healthy body of believers on a foundation of drunk, angry, false teachers who are only leading the church to gain power and authority. It sounds like an impossible task. But this was the situation that Titus faced. His job description was to grow the church, which means that the people of the church, not to grow the size of the church, but to grow the people of the church, which is you, just in case you were wondering, to grow them to maturity. So how does Paul tell him to do it? He tells him to do it two ways. Titus 2.1, going down just a little bit. 
But as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. Make sure, make mature believers by teaching people to be mature believers. This certainly happening right now. I mean, right this second. This is what I am doing to you and with you. I am following Paul's command to Titus by teaching you what accords to sound doctrine. I am teaching God's word, but the Lord is speaking to you through both me and the written word. The word challenges our doctrine. It challenges our belief systems of God, of ourselves, of how our world works, and the, and the forces, it forces us to think and consider new ways of living because of what God has done. However, growth only takes place when we actually do something with it. I can teach you all kinds of great things. I can get you know, this obscure thing out of Deuteronomy and make it really important for our world today, but it only matters You only grow when you do something with it. And ladies and gentlemen, I can't hold your hand and make it happen for you. I can't hold your hand and walk you to prayer. I can't hold your hand and go to a small group. And and I can't, and while you're in a small group, I can't draw out the important things of your life and where you're wrestling. I can't do it. I can't do it for you. The second way that Titus is to deal with this is in verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you, men and women who meet certain standards to help people grow, to teach people about Jesus. He makes this list more than once in his writings. So this is Paul's list of the qualities of leaders, qualities of godly leaders. He does it in Titus and in Timothy, um, and I believe he starts it in Galatians and a couple other places. You can find little bits and pieces of it. Each one is slightly different. So I wouldn't suggest that his lists are complete. Paul's not trying to give us a complete list. So often in the church, we're like, well, he doesn't meet every one of these standards. And I'm like, well, what about these eight other standards that he does meet? These eight other standards that are found other places. Or um, they meet all these standards, but we're like, we're not looking for the right things. These standards aren't complete. But in Paul's mind, these qualities are super important, and they apply specifically to this situation. But in all of these qualities, it's a pretty good list to look at to define a godly leader. In fact, I would call it a measuring stick for godly leaders. Now, before we jump in, if you're here today and you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, I'm not a leader, so this doesn't concern me, I want to tell you that you're wrong. Gently and kindly as I can, you're wrong, because this does apply to you. You see, this applies to you in two ways. First, these are the qualities you should be looking for in the people that you are promoting to leadership. If you're looking for a pastor, you should say, hey, does he meet these standards? Or does she meet these standards? If you're looking for a small group leader, does he or she fall in line with these things? So it's really helpful for all of us, no matter where we're at in our faith, to have something to look at and say, hey, that person measured up, that's trustworthy. God has given them a trustworthy position and I can trust them. But the second thing is this. It applies to you because the goal of Paul's teaching, the goal of Titus' teaching, is to give us a yardstick for Christian maturity. So you need to ask yourself, am I a mature Christian? Do I measure up to these standards? Am I growing in my maturity toward Christ? Am I changing and transforming uh, day by day as I discover who God is and becoming like these things? What's on this list? First of all, six, one six, if, and that's a huge if, isn't it? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, sounds familiar, and that his, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. My kids are probably like, man, that's a, a 
debauchery or insubordination. I look at my kids and I think, hey, you guys are doing pretty good on the debauchery and insubordination list. I mean, sometimes you're disobedient, sometimes whatever, but debauchery or insubordination, that's a pretty high bar, right? Or pretty low bar, maybe is the way we should say that. It's a pretty low bar if his children aren't, aren't subject to that. Verse 7, for an overseer, um, as God's steward, must be above reproach. This word overseer, so it says overseer as God's steward. As God's steward isn't actually in the original Greek text. It is the definition of the word overseer. The, the biblical writers, they, they, got, they came across this really rare word. It's hardly ever used in the Greek, this idea of an overseer. And what they're saying is that Paul's understanding of this and how he used it in his text is not just as a, a political leader or whatever, but this is a person who actually stewards God's stuff. God's stuff. It's not somebody who is just managing people. It's not somebody obtaining power. But they are stewarding, caring for, and growing God's resources. Which, who are God's resources? What is God's resources? It's not wealth. It's not military might. It's not alliances. It's not political power. It is you and me. So an overseer stewards God's resources, which is us. How many leaders in our world do you know that see leadership that way? that they are stewarding and caring for you, causing you to grow and you to thrive and you to become all that God's intended you to be. How many secular leaders do you know that think this way? Here is what above reproach looks like. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or, or greedy for gain. Paul is saying that this guy is already leading or this gal is already leading. They are leading themselves. They're leading themselves into maturity. Do you struggle with any of these things? I mean, arrogance, that's an inflated sense of self-importance. That happens about every 20 minutes with me. It's funny that, I mean, pastors regularly preach against the sins of the people. But what's funny with pastors is we take arrogant and proud people and then we give them the stage. We, we give them the authority. Arrogance and pride just comes with pastoral leadership in this culture. And I have to struggle with it and fight against it and not be prideful, but you seek to be humble. How about quick-tempered? I mean, you should see me before I get coffee, right? But how about you? How is your temper? Are you one of those people that's just, la, 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 boom, I'm angry. I proactively have to fight against these negative qualities in my life. And then he goes on, there's more. Drunkard. When you drink, are you in control or is the drink in control? Violence. That's pretty obvious. Greedy gain. What does that mean? It means that you give the best part of your time and your energy to your work to build wealth rather than to build the important things of God's kingdom in this world. You're building your career. You're building your degree. You're spending your time focused on those things and not on what God's trying to do in you and through you in this world. That's hard. <laughs> That's hard. So now he shoots off a list in rapid fire. This is Titus's yardstick for maturity. This is your yardstick for maturity. He says this, they must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to this trustworthy word that as taught, so as Paul taught, that he holds on to those teachings, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So how do you compare in your maturity in those things? 
Hospitality isn't just having people in your home, but it's really welcoming them into your life. It's inviting them into your faith. It's inviting them to grow with you. A lover of good, the good things of God, the things that God is doing in other people. Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you celebrate when God changes or transforms somebody or when something is overcome in somebody's life? When the chains are broken free, do you celebrate with them? Do you love what is good? Upright and holy, looking more and more like God, set apart in behavior, language, thoughts, looking more like Jesus, disciplined, doing the things that cause you to love God more, even when you don't want to. No one is perfect. None of us. No one fully measures up to this list. And you know what that makes you? You know what that makes you if you don't measure up to this list? Politician. Just kidding. Just kidding. Makes you a human being. And you know what the thing about being a human is? The most important thing about being a human is that as a human, you are the object of God's love and affection. God loves humans deeply with all of their flaws, all of their failures, all of their shortcomings. God loves humans. Paul doesn't write this list because he wants the people to feel guilty about it. Rather, because he wants them to grow up. God loves you just as you are, but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to become like him. He wants you to look like Jesus and really become the sort of person that we want our leaders to be, to become the sort of person that we expect our president to be. People of character whose lives are daily reflecting the work of the Holy Spirit and his power in us big idea to be the elephant you wish to see. In other words, instead of complaining or living in fear of our political circumstance, start growing toward maturity in Jesus. Instead of worrying about the false teachers of this world, start looking like the kind of people that God wants to raise up into leadership. Start looking more like Jesus and be the sort of person you wish our leaders were. Grow up in Jesus. Funny thing about the Bible is that we often go to it with, we're looking for instruction on how to live, how to do the right thing. But when we get there, the Bible always turns our attention somewhere else. It turns our attention to our relationship with God. It always asks, how are you and Jesus doing? How are you and the Lord doing? How is your relationship with God? You're worried about your relationship to politics. You're worried about your relationship to your money. You're worried about all of these things. But the important question is, how are you and Jesus doing? How are you and Jesus doing? We don't have political problems, financial problems, or social problems. We have faith problems. We have maturity in Jesus issues. So when we come to Titus asking about the political turmoil around us, Paul points us to faith. He doesn't just say have faith. He says grow in faith. Grow in faith. Worry more about your maturity than what happens when this person or that person is elected. Worry more about your character than the character of the politicians and false teachers around you. If a sure sign of an idol is fear and disobedience, then a sign of a mature believer is trust and obedience. It's the opposite. You follow? Let me say that again. So if you've got an idol in your life, it'll be marked by a place of fear that it won't work out or that they won't provide, and disobedience. You actively disobey God because you are serving this other thing. But the mark of a mature believer is the opposite of that. It's trust in God to provide everything that you need and obedience to his will and his ways. 
mature disciple accepts not just the promises of Jesus, but also his commands. They're not just saying, Jesus, you said this, and you said this, and you said this, but they also go on the other side and said, yes, you said all that, and yes, all of these promises are true, and I am going to obey, obey even if I don't see the outcome that you promised. Even if I don't see that happening, I'm going to obey. I'm going to be a person of character. And I'm going to follow and trust in you. Christianity is a long, this is from Eugene Peterson, he called it a long obedience in the same direction. Obeying God consistently in the same direction over and over and over again. It's in the direction of Jesus. To be a disciple is to learn to obey in all things. The disciples make the church. It's not the pastor, although we think it is. It's not the elder board, although we give them power. It's not the style or the place. It's the disciples that make the church. So grow with me. Grow with me. My sermons, they're really just blog posts. You guys know that? These sermons are really just blog posts. Or if you're not a blogger, if you're too old for blogging, I'm sorry. It's a journal entry. Does that help? Um, it's a journal entry. I mean, this is the stuff. These are the places that I'm growing. This is the stuff that's challenging me. Sermons are just blog posts or journal, interest, uh, journal entries telling you where I'm growing and where God is leading us. And you can join me as I grow. You don't have to stay the same. You don't have to stay stuck. You can grow. The second thing that this text teaches us is that we have to seek to elevate Christian maturity. We have to seek to elevate it. When we select council members in this church, we have to look for people who are givers, who meet the biblical standards of leadership, who are positive. I've got to tell you that the pool of people shrinks every time you add one of those standards to them. And you get down to the end and then you go, and they have to be available to meet once a month. And then suddenly that pool shrinks in half again. So we have very few people to choose from. And I imagine that Titus had the same sort of problem. As he's reading Paul's list, he's like, okay, that group of people's out, that group of people's out, that group, and he's like left with two maybe. He's like, okay, i got to elevate these people to the Christian leadership. It makes sense to do that in the church. But elevating Christian godly leadership doesn't just have to take place here in the church. It takes place in the political arena as well. When we look for leaders, when we're given a ballot, we must look at the people we are choosing among and say, which one of these people has the marks of a godly Christian leader? And sadly, this year, it doesn't feel like there's very many of those people. When I, I thought when I was going to go into this whole political discussion that maybe I was going to give you hope. I thought maybe I was going to encourage you. But as I read this passage, I thought, oh, no, how do I vote? How do I, how do I, I mean, can I just burn this thing? Because I, I just don't see any of these leaders having all these qualities. They all fail. But we dig and we look and we look closely and we go, are they arrogant? Are they greedy for gain? Are they a lover of good? Are they a person of character? Are they able to follow other leaders? Or have they been insubordinate? Do they marry over and over again? Or are they faithful to one person? Because that's always a sign that they're going to keep their promises. Yikes. Because marriage is a promise, ladies and gentlemen. If you're looking for somebody to keep a promise based on marriage, that's a great place to look. Fortunately, none of our candidates meet this standard, and we can't expect them to. They were produced in a broken system. So we elevate what we can now. 
We look for the very best that we can possibly find based on these. And then we elevate others. You know what the best place to look to start elevating this? Start looking at the candidates below the president. Okay, look at senators, look at congressmen, look at city council members. Can you start elevating people to those positions? Can you elect people that have godly standards that measure up in these ways? In our schools, in our country, in our nation, start elevating these people. In our church, we have to elevate Christians who are mature. We need to proactively look for people who meet these standards as closely as possible and put them in places of authority where they can help us grow in Jesus. It just makes sense. But in our national level, we look for the very best we can. We do the very best we can. We pray, God, who best represents your character and your values, and let my vote count for them, and then I'm going to give God the future and let the chips fall where they may. I didn't tell you who to vote for, and I'm not going to. Good luck to you as you look at the ballot today and tomorrow. I'm going to go home and finish mine this afternoon. Wow. So we're going to close. And uh, what, what I want to do is, is two things. Two things as we close this morning. I know that the ballot is frustrating because the major party candidates disqualify themselves every time they open their mouth. And the minor party candidates are doing the same. I want to challenge you and encourage you. Don't expect them to be Jesus. Don't expect them to live up to the standards. Don't put these expectations on them. Put your hope in God. Trust in him. And do your best to lift up people who are starting to show those qualities. But more than that, the important thing is this. Grow up in Jesus. Be the sort of person you want your leaders to be. Be the sort of person you hope I am. Be the sort of person you hope that Barack Obama was or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or whoever that person may be. Be the sort of person you want them to be. Be a person of character. Be a person who trusts in God above all things. Be a person who isn't arrogant or proud or rude or self-seeking. Be a reflection of God's self-sacrificing love. That doesn't mean you have to let your wife put her cold hands on your stomach. It's a joke just for me and my wife. Be the sort of person you wish to see in our political structure. Grow up in Jesus. What I want to do is I want to take one minute and I want you to think about this list of standards, this list of qualifications. And we're just going to sit as, as, uh, as Jandy just plays. I want you to think about that list and think about what one quality that was listed there do you struggle with? I mean, let's get real. What do you struggle with? Is it pride? Is it arrogance? Is it drunkenness? Is it violence or anger? Is it being self-seeking? What is that one thing? And I want you to just write it down, and then we're going we're gonna to pray, and we're going to lift it up to God, and then I'm going to dismiss us. So we're going to take one minute and just music playing. I want you to write that down.
going to take this and lift it up to the Lord. And if you have it in your hand, you want to just lift it up to him. That's fine. The song that, that Jandy is playing, there's a part of the verse that says, I could just sit. I could just sit and wait for all your goodness and hope to feel your presence. I could, I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. And I could do that and know that God would love me still. You could do that and know that God would still love you enough to die for you. But his hope is that you would change and transform. And that this thing that is in your hand is where God is calling you higher and deeper. Where God is calling you higher and deeper. So what I want to do is lift this up. And if you want to commit to do that, if you want to just sit in God's grace, that's all good. But if you want to go higher and deeper, that you'll just lift this thing up in your hands and just say, Jesus, I need to change here. I need I need hope here. I need new life here. I need grace right here in this place. And I need your grace to work in me, to transform me and change me from the inside. So what you do is just lift those up all over this room and I'm going to pray for you. Father, we are yours. We are your people. You've bought us with your blood. You've redeemed us with your life. And you are shaping and changing us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And right now we are lifting up to you an area that we feel your Spirit is speaking to us. That we need help in transforming and in growing and changing. So Lord, we ask right now that you would sovereignly take this thing, which you already knew. This is us identifying it to you. This is us confessing to you. Because if we believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths, we will be saved. So we are confessing to you this area. We need help. Holy Spirit, transform us and change us in this place. Give us steps today and tomorrow and the next day that we can take to grow in this area. And God, as we do, as we become uh, deeper and more mature disciples in you, as you transform and change these areas of our life, God, may we look more and more like you. And may this church become strong because the disciples are becoming strong in Jesus. May this church become strong because the Holy Spirit's work is happening in our lives. And our lives look more like heaven and less like hell. More like you and less like this world. In Jesus' name. God, now we also just pray for our political system. We want to pray for the candidates that that our, our government has lifted up, that our people have lifted up. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work its sovereign will, your sovereign will and way in this country. God, may we not look with fear, but look with faith and trust that what you say will come true in this world. Even if we can't see it, even if we can't touch it, even if we have no hope of seeing it right now, God, help us to hope in you and to walk in faith and to grow in you as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in the grace of our Lord this week to grow in him.